Before we begin with tonight's encore, I wanted to let you know why I chose this particular interview. The 1964 bizarre death of Dr. Mary Sherman, a nationally known cancer researcher, sets the stage for a gripping expose of medical professionals and masked in covert government operations. Following a trail of police reports, FBI files, cancer statistics, and medical journals, our discussion presents a web of secret keeping which swept doctors into cover-ups of contaminated polio vaccines, cancer outbreaks, the arrival of the AIDS virus, and a deadly biological weapon tested on both monkeys and humans. Add Lee Harvey Oswald to the cast of the Secret Bioweapon Project, and this dark tale connects Oswald's summer of secrets to the intrigue surrounding the assassination of President Kennedy. And now we have the coronavirus. Perhaps this interview will shed some light about the origins and covert operations responsible for manufacturing and releasing laboratory-made pandemics. Remember not to live in fear during these times of uncertainty. Live in awareness. Enjoy. The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. And now, learn how the unsolved murder of a doctor, a secret laboratory in New Orleans, and cancer-causing monkey viruses are linked to Lee Harvey Oswald, the JFK assassination, and emerging global epidemics. You are listening to Veritas. If this is your first time, welcome home. To listen to tonight's full interview and all of our material, join the Veritas family and click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focused Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, Pure Organic Sulfur, Flash Drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas Seasons, and other great products. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. And now, here's your host, Mel Fabregas. Ed Haslam spent his first 35 years living in New Orleans. He personally heard and saw things that involved the investigation into the Kennedy assassination, the murder of one of his father's colleagues, and claims of biological weapons to be used for political purposes. He had a successful career in the advertising industry where he managed campaigns for the Chrysler Corporation, Rockwell International, and others. As the AIDS epidemic fixed itself upon the media landscape, Haslam started questioning what he had seen and heard in New Orleans. He is the author of Dr. Mary's Monkey, How the Unsolved Murder of a Doctor, a Secret Laboratory in New Orleans, and Cancer-Causing Monkey Viruses are linked to Lee Harvey Oswald, the JFK assassination, and emerging global epidemics. And to learn more about Ed Haslam, visit his website at drmarysmonkey.com, which is also linked at ours. And directly from Bradenton, Florida, I would like to introduce Ed Haslam. Hello, Mr. Haslam, and welcome to Veritas. Thank you very much, Mel. It's good to be here. It's my pleasure. May I call you Ed? Please. 
And right from the beginning, Ed, let me ask you this question. How did you originally learn about this subject? Well, I think the simple point is that Mary Sherman and my father both taught at Tulane Medical School in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery. And Mary Sherman was a good friend of my father's. She even came out to the house. I even sat on her lap once as a child. So when she was murdered, it was big news in my family. And then later, when uh, Jim Garrison started his investigation into the JFK assassination in New Orleans, he discovered information that said that Mary Sherman had been involved in some kind of secret medical research with his prime suspect, who was David Ferry. And I was going to school in New Orleans at the time. I was in high school, and I was surrounded by kids who had family members involved in uh, all of this, the JFK um, investigation on both sides of the issue, in fact. Um, so I was, it, the story kind of came to me more than I went to it. And um, I heard a lot of really strange stuff back in the 60s, um, which led me to say things like, you know, hey, if we have this strange epidemic of, you know, cancer involving a monkey virus 30 years and now, at least we'll know where it came from. I mean, those are the kind of comments I was making in the 60s. So, you know, I'm, I wasn't a researcher, just kind of walked in the library and found something and started looking at it. I really lived a life where I had all these pieces around me. What's the thesis of, of Dr. Mary's Monkey, the book? Well, it is first Dr. Mary's Monkey. And by the way, on the website, you spell out the word doctor, D-O-C-T-O-R. But Dr. Mary's Monkey is first and foremost an investigation into the murder of Dr. Mary Sherman. And from that, it's a little bit like Walt Whitman's Blade of Grass, that if you understand this Blade of Grass, you'll understand the universe. If you understand the Mary Sherman murder, you will understand all kinds of other stuff. I mean, it's kind of the um, core secret and it, un it illuminates the darkness. It unravels all kind of um, stuff. And the basic point is that um, her murder was really not what the public was told it was. The public was lied to. I mean, it's as ridiculous as forgetting to tell the public that Nicole Simpson's throat got cut. I mean, right. Mary, Mary Sherman's right arm and rib cage were disintegrated by heat. Now, that takes thousands of degrees of heat. There was nothing in Mary Sherman's apartment that could have um, possibly done that. And so when they found her body uh, naked and stabbed seven or eight times in her apartment, missing her right arm and rib cage, and even the cops on the scene said you could... Uh, see the in internal organs of the body, and I've seen the photos now, and, and you can easily see the internal organs of her body through the section of rib cage, which has been burned off. You realize that, you know, this was not a mattress fire. I mean, the toaster didn't burn off her arm. You know, she suffered a severe um, electrocution somewhere else, and um, they brought her body back to her apartment and faked the murder scene. And so once I started looking into that, it, the story branches out um, to a lot of different directions. It branches out to the uh, polio vaccines of the 1950s. It has a lot to do with um, an effort to build a biological weapon in New Orleans. That effort involved Lee Harvey Oswald. And because of that, 
now you're into the JFK assassination. So it, it you know, it's like an octopus or something. I mean, it's a sprawling story. And, um, you know, what I tried to do in the book was get it all nailed down so that a normal person could read it from beginning to end and understand it without having to go to Wawa land too much. You know, it's, it's kind of a sane investigation into a crazy subject is the way I look at it. The subject's whacked out. The book is pretty um, buttoned down. And I have to tell you, I feel so privileged because I read the book from cover to cover. And you do cover so many areas and you connect some dots. And I thought I knew a lot about the Kennedy assassination, although that was not really your focus. You did not want to discover who killed JFK, but what you found was just incredible. The, the burns of Dr. Sherman, you know, we'll even discuss the linear particle accelerator later, which is something that people didn't know existed at the time. But at the beginning of the book, you say, a quote, for me, writing this book was difficult, stressful, and dangerous, unquote. Why do you say that? Well, I always compare it to if I had written Life's Little Instruction Book, <laughs> which yeah. sold, you know, over a million copies and, and um, was a lot less stressful for um, Mr. Brown to write. And, um, you know, when you're investigating a real murder is um, stressful in itself. OK, and I have a lot of respect for the guys that do it for a living. Uh, but since I didn't have any of their, you know, badges or credentials or subpoena power or anything else, I just had to do it the best I could. And I was investigating a lot of uh, very prominent people in the city of New Orleans, including Dr. Oshner, who was the founder of the Oshner Clinic. And, um, you know, and what I knew about Mary Sherman was what I knew from my father, who had like the utmost respect for the woman and she was out of the university of chicago and he was out of harvard and stuff when you, so when you get into talking about real people and uh, accusations about you know things like killing the president and all that other stuff you know it's not a game i mean it's real life and if you're doing it for real which i did you know it's stressful and um you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that it might be dangerous, you know. So, but I, I made a go, no go decision a while back because when I realized what was going on with the polio vaccine, that they had mass inoculated 100, almost 200 million Americans with a cancer causing virus in the polio vaccine. Um, and then I found evidence that we had an epidemic. We have an epidemic of cancer going on today that started right after the polio vaccine uh, that I, you know, my options kind of narrowed. You know, I said, you know, I a lot of people have done a lot of stuff for this country. Maybe this is just what I have to do. And so I just made the decision to go ahead with it. Um, you know, which was difficult. You know, I'm, I'm married and I have a family and all that stuff. So every decision I have to make, I have to think about them. And in fact, my father uh, told me not to investigate this subject. You know, I mean, that's in the book. So that's what I meant by that. That's right. He, he needed to protect the family. And he told you that uh, in his last uh, days. But let's go back in time and we'll definitely discuss how a cancer virus get mixed with the polio vaccine. We'll discuss that later. But let's go back in time when you were a child, and this more or less happened to me in a way. I remember getting a yellow page book when I was seven or eight, calling every pet shop in, in where I lived 
asking because I wanted to buy a monkey, and they were t- telling me it's illegal to carry disease. You have a, you had a similar story with the pirate. Can you take us back in time? Well, I grew up sailing um, on Lake Pontchartrain as a child. Um, I had my own sailboat by the age of 10, um, and I sailed with my father a lot on his boat, and I crewed with a lot of other people out there. So I was at the Yacht Club all the time. I was one of the the kids that kind of um, hung around like the rats do, you know. And um, one day I'd been out sailing with my father, and we had seen this really cool looking boat coming in as we were going out and when we got back into the harbor it, it looked like a pirate ship i mean you know it was a gaff rig schooner and it had the big rings around the mast instead of the tracks and stuff and the there was laundry hanging out to dry there was a parrot sitting on a perch in the rigging and down the uh, pier coming towards us was this um you know barefoot bare-chested you know ancient mariner kind of gypsy looking guy with a a bandana tied around his head and a monkey on his shoulder and um they were coming at us on the pier the pier is not very wide my father kind of pulled me over so i was um not very close to the monkey and you know i was fascinated by this monkey and you know monkey was staring at me i was staring at the monkey and then i asked my dad i said you know hey can i have a monkey for a pet you know and um he said no like <laughs> very yeah. clearly, you know, no, you may not. And um, I asked him why not. And he said, well, they carry diseases. So some of them can kill you. And, you know, my father lived in the Philippines and had been a doctor of the Navy and had seen a lot of the world. And so I was just kind of wondering where he found out about that. And so I asked him and he said, oh, they're researching monkey viruses down at the med school. Uh, some of the deadly or most deadly ones are coming in from Africa. And that, you know, ended my desire for a pet monkey because I didn't want any weird fatal virus from Africa, uh, regardless of how cute the monkey was. But it was really my first introduction to the idea that, um, A, there was monkey research going on in um, New Orleans. uh, And there's a whole bunch of it, in fact, but that was my first encounter with it. And also to the idea that there were deadly viruses. Um, you know, I found interesting. I, I later asked my uh, father what was that virus he was so concerned about. And he told me it was the Ebola Valley fever. Now, I find that interesting today because uh, Ebola is um, on the books as being discovered in 1974. And my father died in 1972. That means there were people that knew about Ebola before the public was told about it. And those people were at Tulane Medical School. At any rate, that's just one of the thoughts there. And I remember how Ebola plagued Africa in the late 70s and early 80s. There were books written about that, too. But uh, who was Dr. Mary Sherman, and why is she so important to this story? Well, Dr. Mary Sherman um, was officially an orthopedic surgeon, but that's understating who she was. And she was from the University of Chicago. And for those unfamiliar with that, um, that's a school that is known more for its Nobel Prize winners than for its football team. In fact, doesn't even have a football team. Okay, it is an academic superstation owned by 
the Rockefellers or founded financed by the Rockefellers. You know, and this is it was done at a time when the Rockefellers were their investments were in the pharmaceuticals and they wanted a research university kind of on the Euro- European model instead of just the teaching college on the American model. And they wanted to load it up with really heavy duty people studying really exotic stuff. One of the more obvious and exotic things they specialized in were heavy metals, which is why you find people like Enrico Fermi and Harold Urey and the first sustained nuclear reaction and all that stuff that led to the Manhattan Project. All, all the people that were on the Manhattan Project, not all of them, but a lot of them were out of the University of Chicago where the project uh, sort of started, actually started at Columbia, then moved to University of Chicago. And then when they set up the Manhattan Project out in New Mexico, they had uh, the University of California manage it. But University of Chicago is where Enrico Fermi did the first sustained nuclear reaction. And Enrico Fermi was a good friend of Mary Sherman's. And I know this because, you know, my father used to sit around and have drinks with Mary Sherman and chat about stuff. And, uh, you know, they would go to meetings together and those kind of things. So um, what I learned about her by digging through the scientific directories was that, um, first of all, she was a world-class expert in radiation. Okay. Um, she was published in the area. Um, basically, they were trying to figure out how to bring radiation into medicine. You remember x-rays or radiation, and nobody uses right. x-rays more than orthopedic surgeons do. And Mary Sherman was coming from the university that was developing all that technology. And the other thing she was an expert in was cancer. And if you look at the um, publications that I list in the in in my book, Dr. Mary's Monkey, on the chapter about Mary Sherman, it lists, you know, exactly what books I'm talking about, because they are the uh, professional um, books on both cancer and radiation. And at one point, uh, there was a real move that questioned the entire vocabulary of cancer that was being used in medicine. And, and Mary Sherman was fairly vocal about the fact that she thought it was a useless vocabulary. And so the University of Texas published a book called Bones of the, <clears throat> excuse me, um, Cancers of the Bone and Soft Tissue. And um, one of the things to remember about bone cancers is they're not only in the hard part of the bone, but the bones make blood. And so you get blood cancers or actually bone cancers in another way, too. And uh, she was so prominent. They only asked five people to write articles for the book. And she was one of the five. And she had two articles in the book. And this was published right in the early 60s. So, you know, so what I knew about Mary Sherman that the public didn't know, particularly when Garrison made this claim that he had associated Mary Sherman with David Ferry and some other doctors in New Orleans, was I knew Mary Sherman was not some local doctor, that she was a world-class expert. And even um, the front page of the newspaper, that when it, they announced her death, uh, referred to her as being an international cancer specialist. You know, so... Uh, Mary Sherman um, came down to New Orleans in the early 1950s, right around the time Enrico Fermi died, a little bit beforehand. And um, why she came to New Orleans instead of Chicago, I 
think there were some issues going on with her personal life, but you know, she got an awfully attractive uh, offer from the Ochsner Clinic for a, uh, a practice. She'd be head of uh, their bone pathology laboratory so she could do her own research and all that. And she had the backing of Alton Ochsner, who was one of the most powerful and well-connected doctors in the country. And so she comes down to New Orleans in the 1950s, right about the same time my dad does. And they both get appointed to being associate professors at Tulane um, Medical School. And so that's kind of who she is in her background. And the, the point is that when I looked in, you know, you can go to these um, periodical um, things in the library and look up quotations and stuff. Her articles have been quoted for 50 years, her medical articles, okay, which is really phenomenal. And I think I found in the last year before I published my book, maybe 10 quotes about her from uh, referencing her earlier articles. And the other thing about her is she was good friends with a woman um, by the name of Sarah Stewart. And both um, Mary Sherman and Sarah Stewart started the um, at the medical school at the uh, University of Chicago at the same year. Okay, so they were two females in this big, powerful, prestigious, male-dominated um, school, and Sarah already had a PhD in um, bacteriology, um, but was trying to, um, or I guess she was working on a PhD in bacteriology at the time. But the point is, she had this theory that she had been um, uh, nursing for a long time about viruses causing cancer. And um, even when I published my first book in 1995 on this, I had a lot of people pushing back on the idea that, oh, viruses can't cause cancer, blah, blah, blah. Cancer is caused by a special thing. It's not contagious and all that other stuff. And nowadays, the farmers are marketing the HPV vaccine, which is a vaccine against a cancer-causing virus, right? So you, you can't have it both ways. You cannot have a vaccine, try to sell the public on a vaccine against a cancer-causing virus unless you have cancer-causing viruses. <laughs> so they've run out right. of excuses on that. And uh, that's where we are today. And it turns out, I mean, I actually have a magazine in my library here, uh, Time Magazine from July of 1959, where they talk about the discovery of the cancer-causing viruses. And Sarah Stewart and Bernice Eddy discovered these in the late 1950s. And at the time, they said, we think there's a possibility we might be able to, to develop a vaccine. Okay. Well, this was all, I mean, this was in the cover article on Time Magazine in 1959. And then by the time you get to the 1960s, all of a sudden, they're telling us viruses can't be caused by I mean, cancers can't be caused by viruses. Why not? You know, what suddenly happened that made them go into this Orwellian change of language where I, I even have a booklet called Facts and Figures on Cancer published by the American Cancer Society um, in the 19, well, forget where it, when it was published, maybe in the 1970s, that lists 200 possible causes of cancer and does not list virus among the 200 possible causes of cancer. And that's just nonsense. They knew in the 1950s 
that viruses cause cancer, okay? And the problem was when they were working on the polio vaccine, which I'll talk more about the background on that later, but the, sure. the big point here is that they were growing the polio virus to make the polio vaccine on monkey kidney cells, okay? So when they took out the polio virus, well, they didn't really take it out. They just ground up the whole thing and, and, and used it with all of the other monkey viruses in there. And so they knew when they released the um, polio vaccine starting in um, 1955 officially, there's some argument about that too, but April of 1955 is when the uh, official announcement of the uh, salt vaccine being released was, and <clears throat> they knew that it had all these monkey viruses in there. But uh, about two years later, uh, Bernice Eddy and Sarah Stewart in their laboratories up at the National Cancer Institute, National Institutes of Health, discovered a cancer-causing virus that um, in their animals, so their hamsters mostly, uh, that they were using. And that created a lot of hope and funding and they started researching more about viruses and cancer and they discovered the origin of this um, virus that they had named polyoma. They named it polyoma because poly means many and oma means tumors. This one virus caused many different types of um, cancers in a, a variety of mammals and when they realized that it was in the but its native host was the, an Asian monkey called the uh, Asian macaque, or sometimes called macaque. Um, they, the alarm bells went off because they all knew that that was the monkeys whose kidneys they had used to grow the polio vaccine. And after that, uh, they started, and Merck started looking into it, and they found that uh, a virus the virus, the polyoma virus, which they renamed SV40, was in the polio vaccine, and 100 million doses had already been released. Let me just focus on this for a second. This is saying, I'm sorry, I have really bad news. We just inoculated the entire American population, and particularly the children, with a cancer-causing virus. Now, that's really bad news, like from a political point of view. And so if you're holding the roses on that one, you don't want the people to know about it. Political suicide. So I, yeah, I think they did two things. They they stamped it secret um, and they got really busy trying to find a, a solution to it. And, um, you know, back in the 50s, you have to say who's running the show. You know, well, that was Dwight Eisenhower from... 1952 to 1960 was the president and during that entire time Richard Nixon was the vice president and this whole thing of of delivering on the polio vaccine but you have to even go back a little further than that into World War II uh, uh, President Roosevelt um, FDR um, had well he had polio Okay, I went to the president right. of the United States, and he was the most popular president in the history of the United States. He had four terms. I mean, he had so many terms, they passed the law, so nobody else could have that many terms, you know. And he um, had 
gotten together with a lot of people um, in New York mostly and started um, and threw his weight behind the March of Dimes, which was funding the development of the um, polio vaccines. And Roosevelt dies before they're actually ready to be released. But, you know, there's this kind of the Democrats and the Republicans all want this to be done, uh, as do the pharmaceuticals. And I'll, I'll tell you why about that in, in a little bit here. But the um, it is at that time in the late 1950s when they realize the, the problem and they know they need to do something about it and they need to do it quickly and they need to do it secretly. And they set up what amounts to a medical Manhattan project where they're going to use radiation from a linear particle accelerator in order to mutate this SV40 virus in hopes of producing a benign strain uh, that can be used in a vaccine. Now, this is where I want to go back to. Everybody talks about the polio vaccine. Very few people talk about polio. And you can get on the internet nowadays and, and Google uh, polio statistics from the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, and, they, and they'll give you a nice graph on instances of polio all the way back to about 1900. Well, polio is an interesting disease because it's been around for a really long time and never really caused that much of a problem. And it essentially goes in your mouth and out your bottom. And as long as your intestines are in good shape, it does not get into your bloodstream. 99.99% of people exposed to the polio virus do not get polio. So the question is, why is one hundredth of one percent getting the disease? And then why does this suddenly increase? And, and if you look at the, the, the graphs, uh, the CDC graph I'm talking about, it percolates along about two to three thousand cases a year. And then all of a sudden, 1919, there's a really weird thing. It jumps from about 2,000 cases to over 27,000 cases in one year. There's no ramp up. There's no ramp down. It just goes spike and then drops back down to two or 3,000 cases. That's really weird from an epidemiological point of view. But, you you know, you look around and find out what was going on in 1919. Well, they introduced refrigerated blood to the hospitals. And the blood was transferring the polio virus, Okay. So wasn't Oshner involved with blood transfusion in Europe as well? Yeah, it was Oshner who took <clears throat> blood transfusion was in, originally invented by this Austrian doctor. who happens to be the same guy that discovered the polio uh, virus. Right. And um, but he was from Austria where they're re they really conservative and, and they didn't accept what he was saying. And so he was recruited to the United States by the Rockefellers. He worked at the Rockefeller Hospital and Foundation and stuff. And he um, was given a job working at a uh, hospital out in Illinois where Oshner's uncle was chief of surgery. So Oshner, when he got out of medical school, he went up there to train at his uncle's elbow for a while. And this Austrian doctor was there and taught Oshner how to do um, blood typing. Then the Oshner's uncle arranged for him to go to Switzerland to um, 
train because the best surgeons were there at the time to train there. And so Ashner goes over there and brings his blood typing equipment with him. And the Swiss want nothing to do with it, of course, because they're as conservative as the Austrians until um, something happens and some guy robs a bank and he gets shot and he's going to die if if he doesn't get some blood. And so he's, you know, criminal. So they agree to test it on him and it works on him. And then about a week later, the president of a Swiss bank winds up in the hospital uh, with some kind of uh, ulcer, and he's about to die because he's losing so much blood. And so Oshner saves the president of the Swiss bank and, over, and writes an article about it, and overnight he becomes the hero of blood transfusions, and of course the Swiss take his technique and perfect it, and um, that's why we have the Swiss blood banks that we have today. So Oshner's right in the middle of this. He was also uh, a little bit later, after the blood transfusion thing, uh, he became president of the American Cancer Society. So when they realized there was a cancer-causing virus in the polio vaccine, oh, <laughs> and, and let me not forget to mention that Dr. Oshner, uh was one of the major stockholders in Cutter Laboratories, which manufactured the polio vaccine. Huh. So Oshner's got one foot in polio, one foot in cancer, and um, his third foot in blood, okay? And so he's the perfect guy when they decide they need to develop this um, anti-cancer vaccine all of a sudden using the radiation. He's the perfect guy to be in charge of it because he he knows so much about all of these issues and he's got personal connections because the the really big issue for Oshner about this was when the polio vaccine was about to be released. I mean, days. They had a press conference up in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and the um, March of Dimes people were funding it and, and a lot of hoopla. And they came out and said that <clears throat> Salk's vaccine is safe. It's effective. It's been proven. We're ready to release it. Everybody roll up your sleeves and get ready to get your vaccine. And at that point in time, they turned around and handed the vaccine to Bernice Eddy, who was the official vaccine safety tester for the United States government and told her to approve the vaccine. Okay. (laughs) Sound a little bit arrogant there? Yes. Um, (laughs) <laughs> At any rate, so Bernice takes the vaccine back, back to her labs and she injects it into her monkeys and she gets back dead and crippled monkeys. And she said, look, uh, I don't know what the problem is here, but we got a problem here. And if you release this thing, it's not going to work. Um, and, and you're going to kill children. And they said, you, do you realize, Bernice, I mean, we've already told the public this is coming. Uh, we, we, cannot, we cannot back off on this right now. And so... Um, that's, um, that is how Oshner gets involved in all of this stuff. Oh, and, oh and didn't, didn't Oshner lose a, go ahead. Hang on a second. I know where I am now. Um, what happens is when Bernice Eddy says this, Oshner thinks that she's just a bureaucrat up in Washington throwing red tape and trying to delay the release of the polio vaccine. He's very uh, aware of the fact. He's very aware of the fact that they have uh, 125 kids each day getting polio, and he is not about to um, delay, agree to a delay of the release of the vaccine because he believes it's safe. And he's, you know, he's 
uh, one of the doctors who's been promoting it. He's on the board of Cutter. He's uh, been personal friends with Jonas Salk for years, blah, blah, blah. He is so convinced that it is safe that he calls the faculty of Tulane Medical School together, including my father and Mary Sherman, and says, you know, there's a controversy here about the uh, polio vaccine, and I want you to know that I believe it's safe. And um, I wouldn't ask you to do anything that I'm not willing to do. So right here, right now, I'm going to inoculate my um, grandson and granddaughter, which he does. And um, about 48 hours, the grandson dies from polio and the granddaughter gets polio. So and this is, you know, Oster's own grandchildren. So he's he's got personal connections. He's got financial connections. He's got, you know, political connections, medical connections. I mean, he's, he's, he's got more connections than a switchboard on this thing. And therefore, he's the logical person to be in the middle of it. And on his staff, he has one of the nation's leading experts in the u- medical uses of radiation, who's Dr. Mary Sherman, who's also a published expert in cancer. So uh, it is logical for... Uh, Oshner and Mary Sherman to be involved in this. It's also very logical for Sarah Stewart to be involved in this because she's the one who just found the cancer-causing virus in the first place, and she's like Mary Sherman's best friend, and they went to school together. Okay, so these three players are are kind of the center of it. Um, And what happens is, uh, in the 1950s, they're starting to roll out a new machine called a linear particle accelerator, into the workplace, and um, Mary Sherman um, gets them to set it up on the grounds of the U.S. Public Health Service Hospital, which is U.S. government property, you know, so that's an important thing from a liability point of view. Uh, Sarah Stewart transfers at that moment from the National Cancer Institute over to the U.S. Public Health Service. I, I think the reason for that is so that she can be administratively in control of the project. You know, uh, I was told there was a woman involved in this in New Orleans um, who had the authority to um, the authority to um, quarantine the city. Think about that for a second. I mean, New Orleans, with all the trains going in and out, and the ships going in and out, and the airplanes going in and out, Mardi Gras and the trade and all Worldwide the worldwide pandemic. Yeah, quarantine the city. Okay, so. Um, Anyway, that's how this project winds up in New Orleans. It's right down the street from Dr. Oshner's residence. Um, the linear particle accelerator is installed there. I tracked down the people who installed it and stuff. And um, the design of it was particular to this vaccine that they were developing. There were no clinical access features and stuff. And um, it, they put it in a uh, you know, this is a secret project. It's like medical Manhattan kind of stuff, right? So they put it in the infectious disease laboratory building uh, to keep out the casual traffic, you know. And um, they started doing this in 1960 and 61. And we find all these strange people showing up in New Orleans at the time, like a, uh, one of the U.S. Army's bio warfare guys. Uh, you know, he, he winds up after this assignment as director of um, the National Institute of Neurology and Blindness, 
right? And before that, he's running a lab in Fort Detrick. Before that, he's out at Fort Sam Houston. Before that, he's with General MacArthur uh, debriefing the Japanese scientists in Japan on their bioweapons program. And, and I was, okay, so between Fort Detrick and National Institute of Health, where he's the director, we find him in New Orleans teaching introductory biology to nursing students at Loyola University. Um, right down the street from the linear particle accelerator. And if that doesn't sound like a cover job to you, I, I don't know how to make my point. Now, why couldn't they use a, and I'm not a doctor, but why couldn't they use a monkey not infected with the cancer virus, and instead they used the kidneys, they blended the kidneys, mixed with the cancer virus? Was that on purpose? Well, I don't think so. Um, I think the road to hell is paved with good intentions. I think their their belief was that you know a lot of viruses don't cause any problems okay and at the time they did not the mainstream part of the medical community did not believe that viruses could cause um, cancer so they didn't find the cancer causing virus until the late 50s and they had already distributed the polio vaccine in the mid 50s and the reason they used the monkey kidney cells, frankly, was the polio virus liked it. And they were planning on producing 200 million doses of this um, for a mass coast-to-coast mandatory inoculation. And um, that's like seven times more cars than are produced in the United States each year, just to kind of give you a number for it, okay? That's a lot of vaccines, and so they needed a, something that the polio virus liked to grow on, and they used the monkey kidney cells. So they st- the first version, if I, if I remember correctly, was a dead virus. The second version was a weak... Well, it, was, it was supposed to be a dead virus, yeah. Right. That, that was Salk's vaccine. Yeah, okay. And, and the government kept the contamination of the polio vaccine secret, what, to, to avoid public hysteria? And also imagine... If they would have come out, they would have shattered the public's confidence in, in vaccines in the future. That's right. And and the pharmaceutical industry certainly didn't want that to happen. You know, I mean, look at all the vaccines they've come out with since then, you know. And, um, you know, and there's a lot of debate about these vaccines out there and um, on both the medical side and the political side with them. And uh, I don't think there's ever really been a proper um, debate on the subject. I I think it's always too um, polarized with the pharmaceuticals pushing for the vaccines. In fact, when you when you get I I was starting to tell you about the history of polio, you know, we were cooking along at two to three thousand cases a year. And then what happens in 1942 or actually 43 is it suddenly jumps from 42,000, I mean, from 2,000 cases in 1942 to over 10,000 cases in 1943, up to 20,000 cases in 44, and it keeps climbing until it gets about 55, maybe 57,000 cases a year. Now, what happened? What caused that sudden explosion in polio? Well, as I look at the graph, I said, well, something must have happened in 1942, because that's when it explodes. Okay, well, what did they do in 1942? They introduced antibiotics 
and particularly penicillin, to clinical medicine in the United States. And I actually went up to talk to a group of doctors about this, a couple hundred docs, and I said, you know, I'm proposing an idea that the um, the onset of the polio epidemic may have been triggered by um, the introduction of antibiotics. And I said, have you in your entire medical career ever heard anyone even ask this question? Okay. And when you get into the mechanics of it, what you get into is the understanding that when antibiotics kill both good bacteria and bad bacteria, and, you know, you want them to kill bacteria like strep throat or gonorrhea or, you know, um, those kind of things, syphilis, and they've been a great benefit to um, modern life because they do that, but they also kill the good bacteria that lives in your intestines and that bacteria has a role to play in terms of managing the growth of fungus in your intestines and so if you kill the good bacteria without replacing it with probiotics then the fungus or the yeast uh, particularly candida albicans takes over and starts to ruin the intestinal wall and once that happens, then the, the very beautiful mechanism of selective permeability gets compromised and things that normally don't go from your intestines into your blood start to. And the reason that 99.99% of people exposed to polio didn't ever show a disease was they had a good intestinal system and the, and the virus just sort of went through without getting into the blood. But once you start and this candida albicans absolutely love sugar, okay? So, and they're finding polio erupting in the late 40s, uh, mid-40s, in the families of wealthy Americans. Well, it's the wealthy Americans who have the access to the doctors, the new medicines, and the ice cream, and the candy, and the yule logs, and all the other stuff. <clears throat> so, of course, they're the ones to come down with it initially and so the pharmaceuticals are really left with a dilemma i'm sure they know that this is happening and they got two choices they can either drastically restrict the use of um penicillin and antibiotics for major diseases like syphilis and gonorrhea and that stuff or they can push for a polio vaccine so that they will have immunity and they don't have to worry about people getting the antibiotics, getting polio. And they decide to push for the vaccines. And that's how we get this hysteria in the media that we got in the 50s. Remember the guy that ran, Basil O'Connor, who ran the March of Dimes was an advertising executive on um, Madison Avenue in New York. You know, so... Um, that's kind of the background of it. And I don't think the American people know that. I don't think they've been told it. I don't think they've ever, that anybody has ever been allowed to research the connection between antibiotics and polio. But I think it's, the, the statistics are certainly very real and the, the timing is perfect for it. And um, so that's kind of the background on it. And what they were trying to do, I think, was to develop a, benign strain of SV40 that can be used for a vaccine uh, in the same way that the HPV vaccine is being used nowadays to try to stop uh, an epidemic of cancer. And uh, at, 
this point, you know, I, I want to ask the question, uh, do you know anybody who doesn't have a friend or family member with a cancer problem? Absolutely not. And I think it, that connection between the antibiotics and the increase in polio is is so prevalent. Even, even today, the, the CDC is saying that we're losing the battle with antibiotics as the mutations uh, are taking place and we can't do anything about that because it kills, as you say, the good and the bad. Let me, but let me go back to Dr. Mary Sherman for a moment. Or actually, to, to Dr. Bernice Eady, first of all, it seems that she was a principled person because why else would she have risked her career and her pension by announcing her findings to the medical community without, you know, knowledge? Yeah, Bernice Eddy believes in democracy and Sarah Stewart believes in secrecy. <laughs> I mean, these two women were good friends and I think that's what broke them apart. Um, back then because um, Bernice Eddy said this is a medical problem and we need to tell the medical community about it so that we can get the medical minds working on it. And um, Sarah basically said, no, you give me the linear particle accelerator and we'll get to work on it silently um, with all the money of the federal government behind us. And, um, you know, so that's, that's w what happens there. Now back to Dr. Sherman, orthopedic surgery or even medicine was a male-dominated world. You even included a photograph in the book where she's the only female. Wasn't she our version of, of Marie Curie? Well, she certainly had the credentials to be in that category. And, um, you know, I if she had not been murdered, and, and in fact, if they had produced what they set out to produce, the cancer vaccine, she would have been the most celebrated woman um, in American medicine, you know, unfortunately what happens in 1962, while they're in the middle of trying to develop this benign strain, um, in New Orleans is the Cuban missile crisis. And the Russians actually had started moving in the, uh, medium range nuclear missiles in 1961, but the public was not told about it. But by the time we get to October of 1963, um, it's, you know, it's on national news every night. And, you know, we're all sitting there watching the television set wondering, you know, if we're all going to be toast before the midnight movie comes on. And it was a pretty scary time. But the idea of Russian missiles in the hands of Fidel Castro, as they like to personify it, um, really changed the politics of the Cold War in New Orleans. And the there were a number of people, including the CIA and the Mafia, who were working together to kill Fidel Castro for a variety of reasons, uh, ranging from gambling to Russian missiles. And the idea that they could take the results of this medical Manhattan project and ramp it up to weaponize the cancer to use as an injectable agent to kill Fidel Castro is the um, track they decided to go with. And so what we find in 1963, <clears throat> we find that there's this gal from Florida who's like uh, doing outrageous stuff with cancer. She's as a high school kid, she was able to create cancer in mice faster than they were able to do it at the National Cancer Institute. And so when the people like Dr. Oshner and his buddies over at the American Cancer Society realized that they had a uh, asset 
who was too young to be caught, who was totally off the books, and who was outperforming NCI even without a budget. They swept her up, and they started having her do research, and this is kind of on a parallel track at this point, research that they did not want to ask the public about. I mean, these guys all knew about the contamination of polio vaccine, right? And they have some questions that they don't want to ask in public. Here's an example of a question. They wouldn't want to ask in public. Does getting an x-ray trigger SV40 to give you cancer? Say again? Does getting an x-ray, will getting an x-ray trigger the SV40 virus to start its cancerous process and give you cancer. You see how that little simple question threatens the entire use of x-ray in American medicine? Okay. So you can see why they wouldn't want to ask this question in public. Okay. So the idea that they have a researcher who is known only to them, who is capable of working with radiation, which he's been working with for years, working with melanoma, human melanoma cells, and growing it in a variety of mediums like fetal calf serum and stuff so that they can get the answers to these questions without having to ask them in public, which is why they get their friend Senator Smathers, who's a good friend of Dr. Alton Oshner's, to open up the back door of the University of Florida and let Judy vary into the University of Florida so that she can do secret research for them off the books and send reports to Dr. Oshner every month. Now, this is going on in 62, 63. And at that point, Judy gets a phone call from Dr. Oshner and says, Judy, how would you like to skip the last two years of college and which she's not paying for in the first place, but, you know, skip the last two years and um, come to Tulane Medical School in the fall and we'll let you in. We'll give you early admissions and we'll pay your tuition and room and board and give you a stipend and stuff. Um, We'd really like to have you here. There's just one little thing we need you to do this summer. This is the summer of 63. We'd like you to come to New Orleans and you'd be doing cancer research with this, you know, that world-renowned expert, Dr. Mary Sherman. And um, then in the fall, you'll start in toy medical school. Would you like to do this, Judy? Oh, by the way, this is uh, what we're going to have you working on is uh, very important to our country. It's sort of a national priority here. And so Judy accepts and she comes to New Orleans and uh, pretty much as soon as she gets there, she comes early, actually. But as soon as they figure out she's there, they send in somebody to get a hold of her and um, bring her into an underground medical laboratory project, which is weaponizing the monkey viruses and um, trying to develop a biological weapon. And the guy who they send in to basically babysit her, um, bodyguard, is um, an ex-Marine by Lee, name of Lee Harvey Oswald, who's from New Orleans and has one foot in the mob and one foot in the CIA, and he's the perfect guy to be there and do all that. And within 24 hours of meeting um, Judy, which he basically follows her to the post office and meets her in the post office, he introduces her to David Ferry, 
within another 48 hours, um, there's a party at Ferry's house where he produces Dr. Mary Sherman um, to show that he's in contact with her. And then by May 10th, um, they are both Lee and Judy are given cover jobs at the Riley Coffee Company. Um, they're hired on the same day. Uh, they both come from the same employment agency. Um, they are both hired at a subsidiary of Riley called the Standard Coffee Company, which is run by an ex-FBI agent by the name of Bill Moynihan. And uh, Judy winds up being Bill Moynihan's um, personal secretary. And uh, Lee, one week later, gets transferred over to the um, uh, parent company because the standard coffee company is really just a retail arm of it. Lee's got no skills in that. He's uh, there to oil some machinery for the parent company. But the, the reason for this little um, pump and fake with the standard coffee company is that Moynihan can personally control the background checks if it's his company that's doing it. And so he wants to make sure that the word cancer is not discovered in Judy's background and the word Russia is not discovered in Oswald's background. So once he has their background checks in place and has them on the payroll, then he goes ahead and transfers Oswald over to the other company so that they won't do a second background check. And what I find interesting about this, you, you read the Warren Commission, uh, they interview the person who's theoretically Oswald's supervisor, and they said, well, tell us about him. And he said, well, he was this horrible employee. I could never find him. He was out of the building all the time. And, and while he was supposed to be clocked in, while he was clocked in, and, and, and you listen to that for a while, and you say, okay, well, you're a supervisor, right? If he's doing all this stuff, if he's cheating the company, if he's out of the building when he's supposed to be clocked in and there and stuff, why are you approving his time cards? <laughs> well, right. the funny part is he's not approving the time cards. And the person that's approving the time cards is Bill Moynihan, the ex-FBI agent. And when he's not around, Judy is approving the time cards. Okay? So of all the things they put in the Warren Commission, right, the x-rays of Jack Ruby's mother's teeth and stuff like that, oh, all those things, they didn't put the time cards, Oswald's time cards for the Riley Coffee Company in the Warren report. And the reason they didn't was they have Judy's initials on them. Because the first thing any investigator will say is whose initials are these? Let's get them in and ask them questions. And they didn't want the Warren Commission to find Judy. So the those documents were delivered to the Warren Commission, but they were marked secret and we didn't find them until after the Oliver Stone movie when they got released through the JFK Records Act. It's um, one of the most important documents to come out of that. The other important document, which we'll get to here in a second, is, so we're saying during the summer of 1963, they're weaponizing this cancer. And so they got this deal going. Judy is the asset they need because she's the one who knows how to work with these uh, cancers. And so on Monday and Tuesday at the Riley Coffee Company, they front load the work. Judy gets her work done for the week so she can leave on Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday, she goes and clocks in in the morning, and then she and usually Lee together leave and go over to David Ferry's apartment so that they can do these um, the work with the mice. And what they're doing is they have 
they have a couple of secret laboratories set up. And they have one across the street from Ferry's Place, which we'll call the Mouse House. And that's where the mice live, okay, and where the tumors are growing. So when the mice get nice big tumors, the Cuban kids who are running the mouse house throw a bunch of mice into a cardboard box, and they walk it over to David Ferry's house, come up the back stairs, and Judy and Lee terminate the mice with, you know, chloroform or whatever the um, the thing is they're using to kill the mice. And then they cut the mice open. They cut out the tumors. They throw the tumors into a blender. And they grind up the tumors, and then they filter out the stuff. And what they're looking for is the really big, aggressive tumors. And then they put all this stuff. Judy knows how to do all this stuff. She's been trained at Roswell Park up in Buffalo, New York, to do this. She sets the stuff up in test tubes, and she makes slides for Dr. Sherman to look at. And she prepares all this stuff, cleans up David Ferry's kitchen to laboratory standards, puts everything in basically a kind of an igloo box and gets on a bus and carries it over to Mary Sherman's apartment where she delivers it. And they're doing this several times a week all summer long until they get towards the end of the summer where Ashna really starts wanting to ramp up things and wants, you know, to go from 50 mice a day to 150 to 350 to 500 mice a day. Okay. Where they're getting really tired of killing things at that point. But, what happens, they know they can kill the mice. Then they say, well, let's work our way up the evolutionary ladder. Let's see if we can kill the um, some monkeys and marmosets or South species. American monkeys. Yeah, uh, marmosets are South American monkeys, a little bit closer to humans than mice are. And so they start using marmosets, and the marmosets are all dying, and... And then they decide to try African green monkeys because they're, again, closer to humans. And they kill a whole bunch of African green monkeys. And they say, hey, this weapon works. We, now we need to test it on a human, uh, preferably a Cuban, um, to see if it'll work on Castro. And where do you get a human that you can kill and nobody's going to miss? Jail. De death row. That's right. Or death row. Uh, at Angola Penitentiary, okay? So they set up this uh, test where they're going to have a death row inmate from Angola, one or more, transferred from Angola to a uh, mental hospital. This, this is not your ordinary mental hospital. This is the hospital for the criminally insane, okay? And it's in... Jackson, Louisiana. <clears throat> so they're going to drive the bioweapon up to um, the area around Jackson and wait for the prisoner to be transferred. And so what happens is they're, they're going to make a convoy. Okay, so you get this van from the state of Louisiana penitentiary thing, big seal on the side, and they want a black Cadillac right behind it, look, making it look like an official, you know, going in with them. And so the black Cadillac is provided by Clay Shaw of the International Trademark, and he drives David Ferry and Lee Oswald up from New Orleans to Jackson, Louisiana. This is a three and a half hour drive one way. Right. This is not if, if you wanted to go to a mental hospital, 
to make Oswald look crazy like they've been talking about all these years, you'd go to Mandeville, which is right across the lake from New Orleans. That's it's right. the largest mental hospital in Louisiana. They don't go there. They go to this heavily guarded hospital for the criminally insane, okay? And they've got to get past the guards with the weapon without people knowing what's going on. So the plan is for Clay Shaw and Ferry and Oswald and the weapon to drive up to Clinton, Louisiana, which is about 20 miles down the road from, from Jackson, and to wait in front of the courthouse. Now, you, Jack, Jackson's so small, you can throw a fris, frisbee through it. And you drive in there with a big black Cadillac, everyone's going to want to know who you are and why you're hanging around and all that stuff. But you can go over to the courthouse of Clinton because that's the county seat, or the parish seat, as they call it, Louisiana. So, uh, and course there's lots of cadillacs over there you know lots of lawyers and judges and all that other kind of stuff and there's pay phones in those days we don't have all the cell phone stuff and there's a pay phone out in front of the courthouse and so the game plan is they're going to get there and clay shaw is going to call his office and say i'm waiting on a phone call when you get this phone call call me here at this pay phone and let me know well the phone call is coming out of angola um penitentiary and it's basically says, you know, meet me on Bourbon Street or something like that, meaning the prisoner has left, okay? And at that point, they will go rendezvous and wait in a spot for the van to pass and pull out behind the van right before it gets to the hospital, and they'll get waved in with the van. And they even pick up a employee from the hospital um, so that they'll have an employee in the car and the guards will see the employee and everybody will get waved in without any questions. And um, this is on August 29th, 1963. And what they forgot to do was read the newspaper because on August 28th, 1963, Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C., and because they knew it was coming, the Congress on Racial Equality had planned voter registration drives all over the South for the following day. So what was supposed to be an empty uh, square in front of the courthouse on a hot August afternoon in southeast Louisiana in this Klan-controlled town turns out to be a black voter registration drive going on in the Klan-controlled town. And because of that, the town marshal is on high alert. He's standing there in front of the courthouse with the blacks waiting in line to register to vote on one side of him and the whites, angry whites, standing around with their arms crossed on the other side of him. And he does not want any trouble. Okay, so he's standing there watching this with his deputy at his side when this black Cadillac pulls into the scene. And he's saying... Hmm, black Cadillac. Are we looking at the media here? Maybe the government? Outside agitators? Who are these people? So he goes over. His name's John Manchester. He goes over and, you know, pulls his badge and says, may I see your identification, please, to the man driving the car. The man driving the car pulls out his driver's license and identifies himself as Clay Shaw of the International Trademark. In New Orleans. We know about this because during the House Select Committee on Assassinations um, investigation in the mid-1970s, 
Congress subpoenaed John Manchester and had him come to Washington and testify. And the fact that he had connected Clay Shaw with, the, oh, you should know his background here, they knew Oswald was in the car because Oswald gets out of the car and goes over and stands in lines with the blacks and tries to register to vote just to see if they'll let him register because he's white, even though he doesn't even live in the area. So uh, they know that Oswald was in the car. Manchester tells them that Clay Shaw was driving the car from the International Trade Mart. And the House Select Committee on Assassinations marks this secret and prevents the American people from knowing about it for 16 years until after the Oliver Stone movie comes out and they pass the JFK Records Act where it finally gets released. That, in a nutshell, that document, that testimony by a law enforcement official under congressional oath is the single most important document we've got because it connects. It makes the connection that Jim Garrison had tried to make, which was connecting Clay Shaw with Lee Oswald, which means Garrison was not nuts. If he was nuts, he wasn't nuts and wrong. He was just wrong, okay? The point is, that is the connection that proves that the Garrison case was legit. Now, whether that incident in Clinton had anything to do with shooting Jack Kennedy or not, because maybe it just had to do with the biological weapon, and Garrison had his hands on something that was bigger than he ever imagined, and he didn't realize he had hold of it. So that's what's going on up there. And everything the Jolly Green Giant had to go through, Jolly Green Giant meaning Garrison because he was 6'6", and we'll, we'll discuss why when we come back from a break. We have to take a one and only intermission, Ed, but this is so fascinating. I can't believe that one hour just flew by. And I have to ask you this, and I'll get your answer on the other side. So if they weaponized the cancer virus and the CIA was preparing Lee Harvey Oswald, making him look like a defector so that he's welcomed in Cuba... How would he have delivered the quote-unquote payload to kill Castro? And also, I'm curious, do you think Jack Ruby was given the cancer virus? We'll get the answers on the, on the other side. How can people buy this book, Ed? Well, it's available in the catalog, meaning you can walk into any bookstore and order it if you don't want your name on the Internet. Uh, you can, If you want a signed copy, you can get it from my website, which is drmarysmonkey.com, but you spell out the word doctor, D-O-C-T-O-R. And um, you, of course, can get it from Amazon and any of those other type of resources. Barnes & Noble has it. Um, it. It's readily available just about everywhere you look. Folks, this is one of those interviews that you'll have to listen to more than once to get it all. Same thing with the book is packed with with facts. And I'm I'm really glad to have Ed Haslam here today with us. This is Mel Fabregas. You're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. We have so much more during part two. We'll be right back. Thank you for listening to the first part of this important Veritas interview. To listen to the rest and all of our material, proceed to the member section or join the Veritas family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. You can make your purchase with a credit card, PayPal, cash, check, money order, and even cryptocurrency. We are now accepting Bitcoin, Litecoin, and Ethereum. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for Focus Life Force Energy, MMS, CBD Pure Hemp Oil, Divinia Water, 
pure organic sulfur, flash drives with all our Sanitas and Veritas seasons, and other great products. And if you're listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. And click the bell to be notified when new interviews are available. Now, proceed to the members section or subscribe, to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Thank you for listening to Veritas. Because you don't want to believe. You want to know.